This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Bright Focus Chat. I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Today's topic is how to make the most out of your eye doctor visit. Uh, this is the 25th episode of the Bright Focus Chat. So for those who've been a part of previous chats, uh, welcome back. For those who are first time, I want to tell you a little bit about Bright Focus and the format of today's chat. Bright Focus is based in Maryland and we support research around the world to try to find cures and, uh, and treatments for glaucoma, macular degeneration, and Alzheimer's. And we share, free of charge, findings of this research with, uh, with families that are affected by these diseases. And part of that is, is the Bright Focus chat. What we're going to do over the next 40 minutes is we are going to have an opportunity to hear from a leading expert uh, in, in, the, in the field of vision and have an opportunity for you to ask questions. And today's topic is how to make the most out of your doctor's appointment. At any time during the call, you can press star three on your phone and that will take you to an operator where you can ask a question and then the operator will put you back, uh, back into the call. So it's again, at any time, press star three to ask a question. If you have to be disconnected from the call, going to give you the phone number that will get you back in. That's 877-229-8493. Again, 877-229-8493. And then you'll punch in the ID code 112435. Again, 112435. So today we're going to talk about your eye doctor's visit, um, how to make the most out of it. We're going to talk, look at what to do before the visit, during the visit and afterwards. And we're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Michael Allingham. Dr. Allingham is an ophthalmologist at Duke University. And uh, Dr. Allingham, would you mind starting to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So uh, also, first off, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to speak and to answer questions. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to kind of have these sort of chances to, to help folks that I may not actually get to meet in person. Um, so I am a retina-trained clinician scientist over at Duke, and what that essentially means is that in addition to my medical training, I also did a PhD um, in cell biology and that I spend about three-quarters of my time doing research trying to better understand diseases like macular degeneration and other retina problems. And then in my other kind of quarter to a third of my time, I, I spend time in clinics seeing patients. Um, and then my passion is kind of the crossover between those those two areas. So is there a clinical trial that I can offer to my patients that, you know, may help them? Are there insights that I get from the clinic that can drive my research and back and forth? Because at the end of the day, uh, the reason that I'm here at Duke is, is pretty much to find uh, new medicines or treatments for diseases that are not adequately treated. Um, and certainly macular degeneration is, is at the top of that list. Well, great. Thank you very much for... Uh for that background and for your, your dedication to, to helping people's vision health. I want to start off with a very big picture question. Um, Dr. Allingham, in your opinion, what are the keys to the best doctor visit? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense to start at the beginning in some ways. Um, and it, it, it may be counterintuitive, but I think preparation is an important first step. Um, it's it's easy when you come into the doctor's office and there's you know people hustling and bustling, um, you know the technician's going to ask you questions about your health and they're going to check your vision and then you're off to get some pictures of your eye and then you finally land 
you know, in your doctor's office and it's a dark room and they're, you know, examining you with, with a slit lamp, which is a bright light that, uh, that can be challenging to tolerate and things like that. And then they say, well, what questions do you have for me? I think a lot of people tend to blank. Um, and I think that's very understandable. Um, so I think one thing you can do at the, at the outset is, you know, do your reading. There's a, there's a lot of great resources out there like Bright Focus um, that offer, you know, helpful patient-centered information about various diseases and use that to formulate your questions and write them down. Um, and I think recognizing that you probably have five to 10 minutes to chat with your doctor during the visit and, you know, they're going to give you their kind of spiel about what's going on. But if you have specific things that you really want to get covered, then, you know, that's your chance to drive things. And, and I think writing them down really helps you remember in the heat of the moment, you know, when you blank where you want the, the visit to go. So just being a little bit yeah. of an active participant that's prepared, I think. Hmm? That's great. And how would like, any advice on how to prioritize the questions? Because people obviously have some, some nerves and anxiety. And uh, any tips on, on helping people pick, pick the top question or so, some sort of uh, priority ranking? Sure. I mean, I think it, it, it can vary a great deal. Some people just, if there's a question that is, you know, your burning question, that's obviously the most important one to you. But I think some of the questions that are frequently um, overlooked or, or neglected in the face of all this new information is, you know, who do I call if I'm having a problem? Very practical things. How often do I take these vitamins or, um, you know, pragmatic things that, you know, the what ifs, if you're having an issue just to be prepared, you know, down the line. Um, and then I think prognosis questions, a lot of times those are uncomfortable. So by prognosis, I mean, how am I going to be doing, you know, five years down the line? Are there things I need to prepare for in the case, you know, I end up having worse vision than I do now or, you know, things like that. Those are those are difficult questions to to answer as a physician, but I think they're also important to sort of lay out expectations um, and what we can what we can and can't fix and things like that. And I think that's not an obvious question sometimes. Yeah, no, that, that I, I appreciate that. Um, when people are scheduling a do, uh, a doctor's appointment, is there a, a better time of day uh, that mm -hmm. that patients should try to get or? What do you that's think? a great. That, yeah, that's a great question. I, I end up offering a lot of advice about that. So I would first say that if you know, as as you know, as the patient, that you're at your best in the morning and that you tend to kind of get tired uh, by the afternoon, or you're hungry if you miss lunch or things like that, then maybe morning is a great time for you. Uh, the advantage of an appointment that's that's first thing is that uh, most physicians, myself unfortunately included, tend to run a little bit behind. And if you're, you know, one of the first couple patients, I can't get behind because you're the first in line. So there's an advantage there. Um, all that said, if you're grumpy in the morning and it's hard to get out of bed or, or there's other issues, then sometimes, you know, the afternoon is a better time. But you want to pick a time, you know, when you've had a chance to eat, um, when you are at your best to kind of absorb information and, and kind of kind of tolerate with the the rigors of of the exam because it you know it does take about an hour you know and there's there's pictures that we'll talk about more in the future and, and everything so it, it's a little bit of an ordeal sometimes and if you're exhausted then it's it's tough to do yeah no it's, that is a, a great advice and uh, I'd like you to talk about you hear 
people who want to bring along a friend or a, or a relative, um, what's sort of the, the protocol or etiquette or kind of best practices um, to go about bringing someone along? Like, do I have to ask the doctor's office or how or what should I ask a, a friend? Like, how, how would I go about that if, if sure. I wanted to? Sure. I mean, I, I for my part, and I think I, I, I speak for most, most of us, uh, is that we love having you know, one or maybe two other family members or, or friends along um, for a variety of reasons. So I think it's it would be unusual for someone to have objections. Um, I have had circumstances where someone wanted to bring like seven family members into the room, and that can be a little bit, you know, more than three is a crowd, um, and that can get distracting and challenging and things like that. But um, most docs would love having, having somebody along. Uh, I would choose somebody who... Um, you know, you're comfortable, you know, sharing your medical history with in case somebody asks questions, you know, about your past history or were you a smoker or what's your other medical history? You know, you obviously want to be able to have that discussion in front of the person. Yeah. Um, and someone who is, you know, as medically literate or kind of aware of how the system works can also be helpful. Um, I really think, not to drone on too long, but I think the advantages of having someone with you is it really offers you another set of eyes and ears um, that isn't involved in the one-on-one between you and the doc. So they can, they're a great person to take notes so that when you walk out and you, you know, immediately forget 50% of what you heard, you have another set of ears that kind of can help you remember. Um, They may prompt you for questions that you had meant that you had thought you wanted to ask, but then you forget uh, in the moment. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's really, I think it's a wonderful thing. So most of my patients, have uh, someone with them, uh, most of my AMD patients anyway. Well, great. I want to ask a follow-up question about taking the notes in a moment, but I just wanted to remind folks that um, uh, if you'd like to ask a question at any time, press star three on your phone and you'll uh, be briefly taken um, to an operator who will uh, write up, type up your question for us and then and then they'll put you right right back in. So to follow up on, on your, uh, your point, Dr. Allingham, about uh, bringing someone along and taking notes. Um, is there a preferred method of taking notes? I mean, for example, a lot of times uh, people now like to record things on a smartphone. Or I mean, how how does that note taking process um, interact with with um, with your work and and what you're trying to do? Sure. Um, so I will say that I think for my part, I don't mind if people record our conversation. Um, Usually, I think it is good etiquette to ask the doctor's permission because there are um, some some facilities have rules about, especially if you're going to be videotaping or things like that. I think it's just polite that if you're going to record somebody, either audio or video, that you let them know that. Um, yeah. But I personally, I think it's a very efficient thing to do. You know, you have a recorder in the room and then you have the whole visit encapsulated. Um, in terms of taking paper notes, I think that's always fine. Uh, it can be a challenge in that sometimes the exam room is dark um, because we're doing the examination in the dark. So that's something to, to be aware of. And I've had, you know, family members bring, you know, like a little pen light or something like that to help them scribble things down. But um, it's really a matter of what works for you. Um, and I think both, both things are good. Um, and I encourage them. Well, great. Thank you. That's helpful. And uh, related to that, I just want to uh, let our audience know that Bright Focus has resources that are available free of charge uh, at our website, 
brightfocus.org, and also on the telephone um, at Bright Focus's uh, phone number is 800-437-2423. That's 800-437-2423. And at that phone number and our website, brightfocus.org, we have a number of of, um, materials that are very similar to what we're talking about today in terms of questions to ask your eye doctor, um, essential facts about macular degeneration or glaucoma, uh, different treatments, that um, that are involved, and also uh, support for caregivers. We have a publication, care for the uh, caring for the caregivers. So these are materials that are available free of charge at brightfocus.org, and also the phone number 800-437-2423. And um, you know, so that that can be very helpful. Um, our first question comes in um, uh, for from Maryland, wondering how. Um, how does a patient determine that that a um, you know find the right doctor and determine that they have the um, uh, the right uh, the right qualifications for their um, for what for their concern? Sure, uh, you know this is a really common common question that I see, uh, and I think a lot of it really depends on what your what your goals are and what the stage of your disease is. So if the question is you know my mother had macular degeneration, I'm now, you know, into my 60s, I'm curious whether this is something I need to worry about. I think that a qualified comprehensive ophthalmologist or a general ophthalmologist is typically more than capable of rendering that judgment Um, and just kind of screening you to say, oh, no, you don't have any findings to go with macular degeneration. Why don't I just check on you each year? Um, If your question is more, I know I have macular degeneration, I'm having trouble, um, my vision doesn't seem normal, do I have wet or dry macular degeneration, things like that. I really think that tends to fall more to a retina specialist. So that's somebody who did ophthalmology training, you know, has an MD after their name, and then did an additional fellowship of a couple of years specifically looking um, at retinal diseases, and that's what they do all day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd be looking for someone with those qualifications, especially if you're talking about, you know, injections or, or things like that for treatment. Sure. Well, no, I appreciate that. Um, how does, do you have any advice for patients that may have some concerns in advance about um, uh, how they're going to pay for this, do, you know, do, whether it's insurance coverage or if an office requires payment up front or any any tips that you can give uh, patients for how to navigate the the um, you know, before, during, and after the, the financial aspects of a, of a doctor visit? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think this is, for, for doctors and patients, an increasingly challenging thing to navigate because what I'm seeing is that people's coverage and what they think is covered is, is changing um, on an almost monthly basis. And so what we're increasingly having to do is particularly for you know, expensive treatments or procedures is is kind of checking with the insurance company ahead of time so that there aren't surprises. So I can say that our office has a financial care counselor who specifically addresses those sorts of questions. And so they can talk with people that are coming to see us as new patients and, you know, make sure that, you know, their insurance does okay with with Duke's, you know, claims. And, and if there's an expectation that there may be some testing that could be expensive, they can try to kind of help you get a handle on what your expected cost would be. So I think the number one thing I would say is, you know, obviously if you're coming in for an emergency, it's different, but if it's a planned visit, 
you know, coming in prepared and, and you can reach out to the doctor's office. And a lot of us, I think, have people whose job it is to help our patients navigate this, those questions because they're very difficult. Um, and, and so I think getting some idea of what's going on on the front end is important. Yeah. Along no, those, I appreciate along those, Sorry. Along those same lines, I think, you know, during the visit, it's not unreasonable to, to kind of, if you have cost concerns or you're paying out of pocket or things like that, I think it's, you can tell your doc. And a lot of times we can try to, you know, optimize um, our approach in light of that information. And we don't always ask people um, as much as we should. And then, you know, after the visit, if you're having difficulty or there's a surprise or something like that, again, that's when you need to advocate for yourself and you reach out to, you know, your doc or their office and, and a lot of times insurance companies make mistakes and then, you know, they don't pay the first time and I need to make a phone call and explain why it's necessary and then we can get it sorted out. So it can be a pain in the neck, but but usually good doctor's offices will have advocates sure. to help you navigate. Yeah. No, I appreciate your, your candor and your guidance on that topic. Um, another thing that, uh, you know, we often hear people can find a little overwhelming is you'll be asked to give your current uh, list of medications and, you know, I think once you start getting into multiple uh, prescriptions in your life with some very long, uh, complicated names, I mean, how how should someone best approach that as they prepare for their visit? Sure. No, I mean that's a that's a standard part of the intake for any any new patient, and and, and um, it's just it's required these days, and it is it's very difficult. I've found two approaches really work well. The first thing you can do is put all your pill boxes and all your eye drops. Uh, into a, a large baggie and bring it in, um, all the ones that you're taking. And then typically our technicians can kind of decipher that and, and get the information because it's impossible to remember off the top of your head. Um, the second, perhaps even better thing is a lot of my patients have a little document that essentially has, you know, the medicines that they're taking. And sometimes it even has, you know, these are all the surgeries I've had and these are my other, you know, known medical conditions, sort of a brief capsule. Um, some of that is getting... If you're not totally new to the office, a lot of that is getting less necessary because most of us are on an electronic medical record, and that helps, and that if your other doctors start you on things, usually it pops up into our record. But I think a list or just bringing your meds is is, is the easiest way to avoid mix-ups. Great. Uh, we have a question from Ogoledo, uh, in, also in Maryland, and Ogoledo is wondering, what type of tests would you perform to see if a person had macular degeneration? That is a great question. Um, so I think that the, the diagnosis of macular degeneration is, is becoming a little bit of a controversial, um, topic. The, it's very difficult to do without a dilated eye exam. So if someone is telling you what you have and you didn't get dilating drops and blurry vision and big pupils, then they probably didn't look. Um, so you have to have a dilated exam. Usually they will get some imaging called an OCT, which it's a mouthful, but it stands for optical coherence tomography. Um, that is essentially a, a light-based test that uses invisible light to take a cross-section of your retina, which is the tissue in the back of the eye that's affected by macular degeneration, which does the actual seeing of light. Um, and then what I usually insist on for new patients in addition to that OCT is a little more invasive. It's a fluorescein angiogram, um, and that involves the injection of 
a dye, which is different than what they use for CAT scans or MRIs, into the vein. And then that lets me image the blood vessels in the retina. And that is really the gold standard way to determine, you know, one, do you have macular degeneration? And two, and more importantly, do you have dry or do you have wet? Um, there are some other tests as well, but I think those are the two mainstays. Um, and the one that comes as most of a surprise to people is the angiography, just because they don't walk in necessarily thinking that their eye doctor is going to, you know, inject a dye into their vein and then take a take a picture of it. Yeah, no, it's, <clears throat> that's fascinating. <clears throat> in terms of the um, uh, related to that, some of the, the tests you might do, kind of a last question about preparing in advance. Um, I've heard a, a phrase in the last couple of years called Dr. Google. You know, it's the physician uh -huh. that many of us uh, uh, consult with most often. How do you reconcile when, you know, I understand what you're saying. You want people to think ahead and prepare and research. How do you, in your conversations, balance um, what someone says they learned on the Internet versus, um, you know, the, 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 the doctor visit that you're currently conducting? Yeah, how do you, how do you yeah. sort of take that conversation? Well, it's, um, it's, it's a challenge that we face every day, and I, I think on the whole it's been well demonstrated that patients who – the patients – who do those sorts of searches and who are self-educating are patients that over the long haul do better because they're invested and involved uh, in their own care. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I applaud that. Um, what I will say is that one of the wonderful things about an organization like Bright Focus is that they are on the internet and they provide reputable information about you know, the basics of disease, topics like what we're discussing today, um, you know, what research is around the corner and that, you know, Google is wonderful, but there is a lot of misinformation. There are vitamin formulations that are, you know, have no evidence basis to support them that people are selling to restore vision on the internet. So you really have to be careful in terms of validating the information you're getting. And I think that's the biggest snag that I hit with people where they, they kind of hear one thing and I have to say, well, you know, that may be, but I, I don't think there's evidence to support the use of this, that, or the other thing. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's definitely an interesting balance to strike there. Now, uh, one thing we, you know, want to, want to explore with you, in, in, a, in a doctor's visit, occasionally uh, people receive disturbing news. Um, and that, you know, I think all of us are human, and sometimes that takes a little while for that to sink in. Do you have any tips for how people could best process receiving some uncomfortable news over the over the ensuing hours or days after the after the appointment? Yeah, no, I I, I think it's really it's it's challenging. So the first thing I'll say is that, and this kind of goes back to something I mentioned before, is during the visit having a sense of prognosis, and so I think. When people hear, I have macular degeneration, and they think about, you know, their parent or grandparent who, you know, was legally blind because of it, they immediately jump to this worst-case scenario. So I think having a sense of what your prognosis is is important. So that's information that you have to extract. Um, going kind of beyond the, the nuts and bolts of that, I think it just takes some time to kind of handle the shock of hearing that you have a new diagnosis that is vision threatening because we're also dependent on our vision. So I think that, you know, talking with somebody is really helpful. And I think what most people end up doing is they sort of repeat the story over again. And it doesn't seem like, you know, there may not be a purpose to it, but you're, you're processing it just by saying it and you're processing it by 
putting your fears into words, um, and then, you know, getting the support that you need from your friends and family. So I think the worst thing you can do is go home, um, search for, you know, the worst possible outcomes on the internet and sit there and brood about it by yourself. I think the best thing you can do is talk to your friends and family, reach out for help, you know, be open and honest about what you're afraid of with your friends and your doctor, um, and then start taking steps to address, you know, the risks of vision loss in the most proactive way that you can. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that's, I think it's very helpful for our, our, our listeners today to understand that there is a, um, an emotional component, um, as well. And, and related to that, so, uh, research that's been supported by Bright Focus and others have, have shown the impact of lifestyle, um, you know, day-to-day life and, and, and choices on um, vision health and other health. I was wondering, when you have to recommend to a patient that they, they make some lifestyle changes, maybe stop smoking or not eat, not eat as much ice cream or French fries or something, if I'm a patient, and, and that's pretty difficult news to hear, and I'm not sure that I could carry that out. Any suggestions for the patient on how to, how to respond to, to, to some of your suggestions that might be quite, quite challenging? Right, absolutely. I, and this is a hard thing, and, and particularly kind of dovetailing with the other question that we just discussed is if you, you know, if you're in the process of dealing with a new diagnosis and you're afraid and and, and and trying to digest all this information, that's probably not the time to go and make a huge lifestyle change as well. So I think you have to can't put the cart before the horse. So deal with the information first. And then, you know, a few weeks later, when things are a little more clear, then you start figuring out what are we going to do about it? That's step one. Um, I think that the second step is, you know, when someone says, you know, we know for a fact that smoking makes macular degeneration worse. Uh, it you know, it makes our treatments not work as well. And what people hear is, I need to quit instantaneously. And what I would want them to hear is, we need to start taking, we need to accept that this is a change that is going to be in the best interest of your overall health as well as your visual health. And we need to take steps and formulate a plan to attack that problem. It's a very, lifestyle changes, whether it's food or smoking or, you know, other things, it's very difficult and it's always uncomfortable and unpleasant. And I think that if you look at the problem in its totality, it's overwhelming. But if you break it up into an action plan with smaller steps and kind of take it a bite at a time, it's a little bit more, it feels more doable. And I think that's how people are, are most successful most of the time. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I want to turn to some of the prescriptions that, that um, people may, may be um uh, given at a at a at a, a appointment um, so with doctors such as you, how do you what what's best for the patient in terms of understanding the prescriptions that they may be asked to take? Both, um, you know, how and when to take them, and and are there alternatives to to um, to that? Basically, so how does the prescription part of the conversation uh, work best? Sure, um, I think first and foremost is getting you know, written instructions um, in in text that's large enough for you to easily read and things like that and just having it written down because the biggest problem is I say, okay, you're I'm going to start you on an eye drop now. You need to do this one three times a day and do this other one four times a day. And then, you know, you walk out and you say, wait a minute, what? And everything gets, gets scrambled. So I'm a big believer in paper instructions 
for for medications and things like that. Um, And then the second thing is you have to figure out a kind of a game plan to remember, because I think it's, you know, most of us are on a bunch of medications and, and planning that is difficult. So, you know, with eye drops, a lot of times if they're on it three times a day, for example, I'll say, well, just, you know, associate it with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, If it's a something you do once a day, then take it when you wake up or take it when you go to bed or take it when you brush your teeth. So there are ways to incorporate the dosing anyway into daily activities, and that helps trigger your recollection to do things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, a lot of our meds aren't things that you do once a day. It's drops that are several times a day. So it's not like you can take all your pills in the morning and be done. Um, So it can be a little bit of a challenge, but I think writing it down and then figuring out what your routine is going to be and trying to make it a habit um, are the best approaches. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And and also in terms of prescriptions, a few minutes ago you gave some 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 really good advice for people who are trying to figure out who's going to pay for this doctor visit and how. Related to that, when people have concerns or questions about prescriptions, um, what's kind of what's the best way for them to articulate that to you? Yeah, I mean, I think you really got to come right out and say it, um, and just because a lot of times there. So we as docs sometimes can be in we get into habits with the medications that we use. And some of our most frequently used medications are finally becoming generic. Um, And so saying, you know, is there a generic for that? Or, um, you know, is there another medication that could be less expensive, particularly if you get sticker shock when you go to fill, you know, your eye drop prescription, just you can, you can always wait a day and then, you know, call the office and see whether there's another plan. Um, I would also say that most of our, most of the pharma's, the pharma companies that make these, you know, drops in our injectables and things have um, assistance programs. So if you are having a lot of -of out-of-pocket expense associated with it or insurance is only partially covering or you have no insurance to help, um, a good office can usually find a workaround to help Mm -hmm. with that. But you have to ask or we won't know that you're having that that struggle. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. A lot of people are are sometimes a little too proud or um, exactly uh, yeah and uh, at brightfocus.org our website has a list of patient assistant programs and you could also call our office at 800-437-2423 that kind of sequentially i think we're sort of getting into the end of the doctor's appointment and and questions afterwards um if you're like me and a lot of other people your your memory you're you're the most articulate um after the after the meeting is over Mm -hmm. so how Mm -hmm. should um how should one, uh, you know, I said every, everybody's brilliant on the car ride home. Like, what should what should someone do if if after the visit they 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 still have some questions or points they wish they had told you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a, so a few things. There are one of the benefits of the electronic medical record is that it's a lot easier to kind of reach out via email or, or sort of an email equivalent to the doctor's office and get some of those questions answered. And I find that a lot of times those questions are those pragmatic ones that I was mentioning before, which is, so how often do I take this drop? Or what's the emergency number for your office if I have changes in my Amsler grid or, um, you know, things like that. So reaching out to us electronically is pretty easy. Calling the office, you know, we know that people forget what we say or that we forget to say things that are important sometimes. Um, and then, you know, for for non-urgent things, a lot of times that can 
can set you up for your next uh, group of questions for the next visit. So I find that frequently, um, you know, I see most patients many times over many years. Um, you know, my first visit is, you know, explaining the diagnosis and trying to get them up to speed. And then they go home and they realize they have, you know, two or three other questions that they didn't realize and they write them down and bring them back and we talk about that the next time. So recognizing that you're going to, for most eye conditions, um, you know, a lot of them are chronic and you end up having a relationship with your doctor over, over time. Um, just remembering those questions, if they're not critical, um, and bringing them back can also be another way to get around that. Well, great. We have um, just time for a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you uh, a common concern um, or interest is a second opinion. And I know some patients find that a, uh, an awkward topic to broach. Um, any, any suggestions on how someone should uh, mention a second opinion if that's on, um, if that's on their mind? Yeah, I, I think that's a really common, uncomfortable thing for patients most of the time, more than for doctors. Um, I think I think patients are afraid that their doctor is going to, you know, disown them or, or be offended if they want another opinion, where I think m the vast majority of, of doctors, or at least the doctors that I would want to be seeing as a patient myself, would be really comfortable with a second opinion. Um, I recognize, you know, I've had the talk with my patients that that a physician-patient relationship is something like a marriage or a relationship, and, you know, everyone doesn't get along. So some people, you know, they respect me as a doc, but they want a different style, and I'm fine with that. Some people just want to hear a second person confirm, you know, a frightening diagnosis before they, you know, start shaping their life around what's going on. And at the end of the day, I'm, I'm here to do what's best for my patients, and um, I'm, I'm, and if, if I think that they would benefit from a second opinion, I'm always on board um, to help arrange it, and I'll even give them a name. So my top-line advice would be don't be afraid to ask. I think most doctors are used to that, um, and, I mean, half of my patients are second opinions from somebody else, so it's not as uncommon as you might think. Yeah, um, no, that's and I, enough. I think, yeah. No, it's very it's very reassuring. Um, I guess just a, 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 kind of another question related to people's concerns or anxieties is, oftentimes you'll you'll hear doctors or see things in the office that mention clinical trials, and, and that's a it's a common phrase, but I don't think it's always well understood or something people. So, um, are you involved with clinical trials, or do you have any suggestions for people who are either interested or concerned or afraid of? It's, it's a big concept that I don't think people truly understand. Sure. So I, I am. I mean, that's one of the one of the big things that I do as a clinician scientist at an academic institution. Um, I think that the the first thing is is that it can mean a lot of different things. So I have some clinical trials which literally consist of getting the patient's permission to look at their examination findings and their imaging and then correlate that with how they do over the long term to try to learn more about how we can predict who's going to do well and who's going to need more treatment and things like that. So that's essentially no skin off your back as long as you don't mind me looking at your pictures. But then, you know, at Duke we have you know, phase one trials for new Drusen drugs that we're going to be rolling out. We have a couple um, phase two trials. One is an injectable for advanced dry macular degeneration. One is a stem cell therapy for advanced dry macular degeneration. And then there's other new drugs that are, you know, for wet macular degeneration. Um, and they come in different kind of uh, flavors where some are 
literally a safety study. Is this safe to do in a person with this condition? We don't know if it will help you or not. Some of them are trials that are immediately before approval of the drug saying, is this better than our standard of care? We already know that it's safe. We're looking to see if it helps. Um, but I think for a lot of things, it's for dry macular degeneration, for example, there isn't really an FDA-approved therapy, therapy to cure it. You know, we have the vitamins to slow it down. So uh, we get a lot of interest in clinical trials there. Um, oh, it's just, not to drone on too long, it's important to flesh out your, you know, what exactly you're getting out of it um, and what are the risks involved and things like that um, sure. with your doctor before you sign up. But I think it's a great option and it obviously has the potential to help, you know, millions of people aside from yourself. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, one more question that we've got from Mr. Um, uh, Martha from Virginia is wondering, who, how does an eye doctor communicate back with the primary care doctor? And in other words, like whose responsibility is that the patient's responsibility to make sure that happens, or does the does the um, does the physician do that? Sort of how who communicates with who to keep everybody uh, fully informed? Sure, I, I think this is an area of great change um, in medicine. So it, it can depend at, at at Duke and you know where I practice both the private practice people and the people at, at Duke as well and the people at, at other universities nearby are all on the same um, electronic medical record software. So it's easy to forward a note or your doctors can always kind of just do a search and find out, find your notes from other physicians. Um, so we're all sort of interconnected, so to speak. Yeah. Um, however, there are times when people can't see that and I think that I encourage my patients um, if that's a, an, a concern of theirs, to, to get paper copies of their relevant clinic notes and to keep those with them um, because that's the most – I find that communication between doctor's offices frequently either takes a while or gets lost. So having a hard copy yourself is never the wrong, the wrong answer. Um, well, that's great. Finally, no, yeah. I'm sorry. I think, Continue. I, I think most, uh, most docs will send a note to your primary care doctor if you ask them to. So I have people ask me to do that sometimes, and I'm always happy to oblige. That's great. No, I know that that's a, a big concern. So uh, we're just going to uh, wrap up a couple of housekeeping topics. Um, uh, so this is the 25th uh, episode of the Bright Focus Chats, and we want to continue to make them uh, the most helpful for you, for you, the listener. So we just have a, a one question that you, people can answer through their phone, and that's overall, how would you rate this chat? If you found this chat helpful, please press 1. If you found this chat only somewhat helpful, please press 2. And if this chat did not uh, be helpful to you, please, please press 3. So again, if you found it helpful, press 1. If you found it somewhat helpful, please press 2. And if you did not find this ch chat helpful at all, please press 3. While you do that, I just want to make a pitch for our up next uh, chat. We do these once a month, often the last Wednesday of the month. And it, our next chat is going to be March 30th, and it's going to be called Spring Cleaning, Making Your House Safer for Low Vision. And um, we encourage you to register for that now, and we also encourage you to submit your questions in advance. And for those of you who received information about this chat via email, you'll receive an email for that. So, again, it's Spring Cleaning, Making Your House Safer for Low Vision, and that's going to be on March 30th. If you'd like to stay on the line when the call concludes, you can leave a message to register for that March 30th chat. You can request a transcript of today's call for yourself, or you can share it with someone else that you might be interested. And again, at any time, you can always contact Bright Focus at 
800-437-2423. That's 1-800-437-2423. And at that number or at brightfocus.org, you can find out a lot of information free of charge um, to help families that um, uh, are affected by, by vision diseases. And uh, I just want to conclude by thanking Dr. Michael Allingham of Duke University. Uh, Dr. Allingham, I think you, you gave some, some clear, uh, candid, and, and very, very useful information. And most importantly, I want to thank our, our listeners. So, Dr. Allingham, do you have any uh, final words for our audience? Uh, no, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to speak with everyone. I, I hope it was helpful and uh, that it'll kind of bring you more success with your doctor visits in the future. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. And again, to our listeners, um, uh, thank you. And hopefully you'll be back for March 30th, spring cleaning, making your house safer for low vision. Thanks, everyone. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.